Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the executive pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit mysouthland.com. We're going to keep going here with Romans, and I'm going to do an entire chapter today, Romans chapter 5, and I'm going to start by reading the first six verses, and then we'll pray, and we'll get into this. But we've been talking lots about justification and faith, also some about propitiation, so you guys have learned some new words here in this series And today we're going to look at four benefits, Romans chapter 5. Actually, it gives us some more, but I kind of simplified it down to four main ones. But Romans chapter 5 gives us four, shows us four amazing benefits of being justified by faith. So we just keep marching our way through the book of Romans. And I'm going to read the first six verses here, and then uh, we will uh, uh, get into this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Father, I thank you. Uh, I thank you, first of all, for Pastor Ray this morning, for Dad, Lord Jesus, we thank you, and we just pray a blessing on him going forward. And we thank you for this church family that you have raised up here by the power of your Holy Spirit. We're blessed to be a part of this. We thank you for the book of Romans, which sometimes is viewed as being overcomplicated, but in it, Father, we find tremendous, wonderful, life-changing, eternal truths. I pray that you would touch us by your Holy Spirit this morning as we look at Romans chapter 5. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Four benefits of being justified by faith. And the first one there in Romans 5, verse 1, which I just read. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the first benefit, is we get to have peace with God. Now, what does this mean that we have peace with God? Nowadays, often when we use the word peace, we mean kind of the lack of conflict. Okay, so a marriage counselor who's working with a very difficult couple and maybe he brings some stability into the relationship and now they've stopped fighting may say, well, at least we have, at least there's peace in the relationship now. And so in that, we, we often use the word peace in that sense. It just means lack of conflict. Or a, uh, a reporter may be talking about two countries that hate each other and now they've stopped, you know, technically they maybe stopped bombing each other for a while and the reporter said, may say there's now peace between those two countries, okay? So we often use the word peace in our culture to just mean lack of conflict, okay? But what you need to know is that the word peace here in this verse means a whole lot more. It's a million times better than just lack of conflict. What Paul is saying here is a million times better. It's so much more than just you, you know, because of Jesus now, you and God aren't at each other's throats, okay? What, what the Greek word there actually is, the Greek for, for peace, is the Greek word irene, and it means a couple of things, okay? And I'm going to put them up there, because some of you are visual learners, and it'll just help you. But it means, first of all, it means safety from the rage and havoc of war, okay? So that one is an obvious uh, use of the word peace. But second of all, it also means security, 
prosperity, harmony, and felicity. Now, felicity is not a word we use very often anymore. I don't know. I wonder how many of you used that word in the last week. But felicity is kind of like, I I don't know how best to to put it together. It's sort of like blissful happiness almost. If you, you know, a marriage that is full of felicity. So you guys can all, all of you should just write that down and try and use it one time this week. And this community is going to go, what happened to those Southlanders? Um, but felicity kind of means blissful happiness, very happy with each other. If you, have that in a, if you have felicity in a relationship, you have very happy feelings towards each other. So that's what this Greek word, eidrene, means. So because of Jesus Christ, we have peace with God, not just lack of conflict between uh, us and God. First of all, it means safety. We are in a safe relationship with him. Because of Jesus, we are safe from God's wrath against sinful mankind. But we're in a safe relationship. Okay, because of Jesus Christ, we don't have to worry about God. Not that God is like this anyway, but certainly his wrath against sinful mankind is terrible. But we are in a safe relationship with him in the sense that we don't have to worry about him lashing out at us. We don't have to worry about all kinds of ups and downs. Is he upset with me? Is he leaving me? All those sorts of things. We're in a safe and secure relationship. We're also in a prosperous, harmonious, and felicitous relationship with him, which means that he has actually good feelings towards us. He has very good, because of Jesus Christ, it's not just that we're at peace with him in the sense that we're not fighting. He actually, we're in a safe relationship. We don't have to worry about him kicking us out the door or losing his temper on us. But even better than that, he actually has good feelings towards us, prosperity, harmony, felicity. He actually has set his face towards us because of Jesus. The moment you accept Jesus' blood to pay for your sins, God sets his face, his face towards you to do good to you. He wants to prosper you. Now, we're not talking here, obviously we've talked about this many times before, we're not talking here uh, just about, you know, material prosperity, okay? Um, it's so, uh, and we know that here, and, and we're going to see that in just a couple of verses in this very passage. This does not mean that God always wants to prosper us materially, because the fact of the matter is that sometimes prospering us materially isn't the best thing for us. And God actually wants to prosper us. He's absolutely 100% committed to prospering us. If that means prospering us materially, then he'll prosper us that way too. Often it means some suffering. But what we can rest in then is because of these prosperous, harmonious, felicitous feelings towards us that everything God ever wants to do is he only ever wants to do good to us. It's like those of you who are parents. You have kids. You, now, some of you with teenage kids, maybe this feeling kind of goes up and down, but with God, it doesn't go up and down. <laughs> but generally, as long as they're not really grating on you, um, generally, you know, at least when you look at their pictures, okay, at nighttime after they're in bed, um, think of those feelings, okay? Um, but when you look at pictures of your kids, or you think about your kids, isn't it true that you only, as a parent, you only ever want good for them? You want them to be blessed in every way. You want them to succeed. Isn't that true? You want them to succeed in life. You want them to succeed emotionally. You want them to be happy. You want them to have healthy relationships. You want them to be safe for all of eternity. As a parent, we want only good for our kids. Now, sometimes we have to discipline them because we want good for them, but we only want good. We all, every parent, it's just part of how we're made. We want our kids to grow up and succeed. Sometimes in our sinfulness, that becomes there's woundedness and stuff in there, and how we behave out of that is not good. But even when we do bad things to them sometimes out of our woundedness, it's because we want good for them. 
And this is the very same feeling, except times a million and with purity and no sin in it, that God wants you to prosper and be blessed. Not necessarily materially, because that may not be good for you long term. But, but ultimately for eternity, he wants to prosper us. That's his feelings towards us. And I want you to notice here that this wonderful, amazing feeling that God has towards you is not based on what you've done. See, we tend to, to interpret, how does God feel about me today by how do I feel about me today? Isn't that true? So I get up in the morning, and this last week I've been a little inconsistent again, or yesterday I, didn't have, I wasn't too spiritual, I didn't pray as long as I would normally want to, or I've been failing in this or failing in that, and based on my feelings about myself, that's how I interpret my feelings about myself. I just mirror that, and I think that must be how God feels about me. But what this passage tells us is, since we have been justified by faith, it's not based on what you did yesterday. It's not based on how hard you tried to please God yesterday. Simply on the, simply on the truth of, I have accepted Jesus to pay for my sins. Based on that, not what, on what you've done, God now has a certain feeling towards you based on Jesus. And that feeling towards you is prosperous, harmonious, felicitous. He wants to do good to you. It's actually a life-changing truth. But many of us stumble through life day after day with this sort of vague feeling of guilt and condemnation. We kind of get up in the morning and, and in, in some cases, it, depending on how severe it is, many of us don't even want to think of spending time with the Lord. And the reason we don't want to think about spending time with the Lord is we actually just really subconsciously want to avoid Him because we don't feel worthy. And we have this sort of vague, and I've talked about it in this series several times already, we have this sort of vague subconscious sense of guilt and condemnation that just follows us around our whole lives. And what we need to do is begin to stand on the truth of what God's Word says. So you think, yeah, but if I let go of that sense of guilt, what's going to motivate me to do right? Love. Amen. Far better to be motivated by love than to be motivated by this sense of condemnation and guilt. And again, there's a legitimate place for guilt. When I do wrong, I should feel guilty until I confess and repent, make it right with people if I've done something wrong to people. That sense of guilt should drive me to repent. But the moment I've repented again, we should be motivated by love. The fact of the matter is, this vague sense of condemnation, it actually doesn't motivate us to go close to God. It's what motivates us to avoid Him. It's the thing that motivates many of you men. You know you should be getting up in the morning to spend time with him, but instead of spending time with him, you'd rather call up the internet on your phone and look up sports scores or anything to just kind of keep your mind off that feeling of distance you have from God. But the thing you have to realize is it's not based on what you've done. It's based on Jesus Christ and on his work. And because of what Jesus did, God has now set his face to you to love you and prosper you, which means that when you want to pray, he says, come on in. I want to love you. I want to touch you. I want to bless you. Peace with God is an incredible benefit of being justified by faith. And it's by faith, which means I just have to receive it. That's all it is. It's just me saying, I'll let you pay for my sins. That's awesome. That's awesome. Benefit number two, we keep going. Verse number two. So we've been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now verse number two, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope 
of the glory of God. So the second benefit, first benefit, peace with God, second benefit, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So what does that mean? Now the word access there, so I'm just doing a couple of Greek words today. It's sometimes just a little bit helpful, okay? And it's going to give us a, a parallel to another passage. But anyway, the Greek word there for access is prosagoge, okay? Prosagoge. And what it means is introduction or approach, okay? And what many commentators would, would agree here that this is speaking of is that because of Jesus' work, we, are, we now are granted uh, the access to approach the Father. Because of Jesus' work, we can approach God. Before Jesus did his work on the cross, uh, you and I, too sinful, too imperfect, no way we can go into the presence of a holy God. But because of Jesus' work on the cross, not because of how good you are, because none of us, the most perfect person isn't good enough. None of us can get even close. You know, sometimes, I remember hearing this analogy once, and I've used it before, but sometimes we compare ourselves to other people and we think, that person's a lot better than I am, okay? But when it comes to, uh, you know, being holy like God, it'd be like me. I can jump maybe this high off the ground. I, I don't have a good vertical, okay? Uh, and, and, and so I jump, and, you know, Michael Jordan maybe is beside me, and he jumps, you know, three feet in the air, and I go, wow, you know, he can jump so much higher than me. He's so much closer to God. But that's like, you know, if we're trying to jump to the moon, whether you jump this high or whether you jump this high, you're so far, it doesn't matter, okay? And it's the same with holiness. We compare ourselves to each other all the time. Well, of course, that person's a lot more spiritual than me. That's why God listens to their prayers, and I'm less. I'm just not as good, and you can see by their behavior. Well, okay, so in your actions, you've jumped this high. In their actions, they've jumped this high. But to get to the holiness of God, literally, it's like trying to jump to the moon. So not because of anything you've done. There's no way. The best person can't do it. But because of Jesus' work, because of what Jesus did, and all I can do is receive that by faith, I'm now granted access to approach into the very presence of God. And you know, there's a parallel here with Ephesians. There's a parallel verse in Paul's writings where he uses the same words. And it just kind of fleshes this out a bit more. Ephesians chapter 2, 17-18. And he, that's Jesus, came and preached peace, and there's that word irene again, to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access, same Greek word there, prosagoge, in one spirit to the Father. Okay? So is this not the most incredible deal in the history of mankind? Okay? You owe death, eternal death, to God for your sins. Jesus comes and says, will you let me pay for it? And all you say is, yes, I'll let you pay for my sins. That's faith. That's it. That's all you can do. So he comes along and says, I want to pay your penalty. And you say, yes, I'll let you pay my penalty. And in return for you letting him pay the bill for your sins, you get unlimited access for the rest of eternity into the very presence of God himself. That is an incredible deal. It's an unbelievable deal. It's shocking. No wonder hell is on the other side for those who refuse it. It's such an incredible deal. Why would you ever? It would take a special kind of wickedness to refuse it. It would take a special kind of wickedness to confuse it. And the book of Hebrews talks about this a lot, this whole stunning access into God's presence thing. I'll read you just a couple of passages. Hebrews 10 says this, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Notice it does not say, since we have confidence to enter the holy places because of how much we prayed yesterday. 
since we have confidence to enter the holy places because of how good we behaved last week. It doesn't say that. It says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Did you know that you can draw near to God in full assurance of faith, knowing he hears me, he loves me, he wants me here right now? In full assurance of faith, with a heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Hebrews 4.16 says this, Let us then with confidence, I think the NIV says boldly, I love that word boldly, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know, sometimes in my devotions, here's a little practical thing that I do. Because we all have many times where we get up and we just don't feel worthy. We all have many times when we get up and we open the word and we've got a list of things we want to pray and we just don't feel it. Are you ever there? I'm sure you guys are there sometimes too. I'm sure it's not just me. And you've got this list of things you need to pray and you've got this list of things that you want God to do, but you just feel no power. It's like, it just doesn't feel real. And you know what I sometimes do is I'll just get up and I'll just quote Hebrews 4.16. I'll just say, I'm coming boldly into your throne room right now because it's not based on how I feel. It's not based on what I've done. It's based on Jesus. I'm coming boldly right now. And I'll just say it out loud or whisper it or write it down depending on, on where I am or what's happening. But I'll just say, I'm coming boldly into your throne room right now. And it's like faith just begins to rise up because I realize I'm going into his presence, not based on how I feel, not based on how I've acted, but based on him. And this is because of Jesus' blood. He's paid the way. I can go every time I want to pray. I can go into his very presence and he hears me. And you look at this, this amazing testimony with, with uh, Andy here today, Andy Fast. And yeah, his prayer didn't get answered right away, boom, right in front of him like this. But what did God do? First he changed his heart, and then nine months later he gave him his heart's desire. That's Psalm 37 verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. He always answers prayer. But we have to go into his presence. And Jesus has paved the way. So peace with God, unlimited access into his presence. These are unbelievable, unbelievable, stunning benefits to being justified by faith. Let's go to benefit number three. Verse three, Romans five. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. I'm going to stop there for just a moment. Not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings. And he's going to show us a few reasons why now in just a little bit. And the main one's going to be at the end. But because of justification by faith, by receiving Jesus' blood, by receiving his payment for my sins, as a result of this, we can now rejoice in our sufferings. Now, I know when I stand in front of this many people, I mean, the human condition is suffering. I was in a hospital yesterday visiting someone who was suffering. I was praying for people this morning before the service who are suffering. The human condition is we suffer. I was reading in my Bible this morning for my devotion, 2 Timothy, and Paul talks over and over again about suffering, suffering, suffering. So I know when I stand in front of this many people, there is a big chunk of us who are suffering. And those of us who aren't suffering, we're just waiting for the next bout of suffering. It's like Manitoba winters, right? Like Manitoba seasons. <laughs> you know, the Manitoba seasons are, what is it? Winter, almost winter, uh, road construction and then winter again or something like that, right? So, <laughs> the human condition is suffering, about to suffer, okay, and, and back to suffering, okay? That's just what we get until heaven. But because of Jesus, what Jesus did on the cross, we can now rejoice in our sufferings. 
We can rejoice in our disappointments. Some of you are here today, and your, your suffering is a massive disappointment. You can't have a baby. Some of you, it's a, it's a struggle in a marriage. that just, It just seems to be unending. Some of you, it's actual sickness or disease or physical pain, or it's finances or it's whatever, but you're sitting here, and you ha- are under tremendous pressure, tremendous disappointment. Paul says that once we receive the gift that Jesus gives us, the justification, we can now rejoice in our sufferings. Well, why is that? Like I said, he's going to give us a few reasons, but the main one's going to come at the end. Okay? We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, okay? Now, it's really interesting to me. So first of all, we see here the big character thing. It's interesting to me the, the tie that Paul makes between character and hope. How many of you knew that in order to have more hope in your life, you actually have to have more character? See, hope is not just a feeling that comes and goes. Hope is actually a tangible thing that either grows strong in you or grows weak, and it's based on a foundation of character. Character produces hope. And the thing is, we see this in real life. I would never, if it wasn't for this passage, I would never in my human intelligence have made the connection that more character equals more hope. But that's what Paul says here in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And when I look around in real life, I see actually that it's true. I see that it's true. I think of the testimony we saw two weeks ago with Marty and Andrea. We've had some amazing testimonies this month, sharing out of their intense disappointments when they couldn't have a baby, and then how God took them, and, and, and there was strain on the marriage from that, and there was strain in their lives and all this sort of stuff. But through that, and of course, no, personally knowing them well too, how God, in, in the pressure and in the taking them deeper, you come, they come out on the other side, and somehow they come out of this dark disappointment. They come out smiling. They come out smiling more than they were going in. They come out with a whole new perspective and vision on life and what God's doing in their family now, and it's this amazing stuff. But somehow there's this thing of, I suffer, it produces character, and out of character comes this wonderful thing called hope. This wonderful thing called hope. And the reason this works is because of what Paul says next. Character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Here's the because. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The reason we can rejoice in our sufferings, the reason character produces hope instead of despair, is because of the mechanism of love. The more your heart gets opened up to God's love, the more your character grows, and the more you feel hope even in the midst of suffering. That's the mechanism. It's God's love that makes it all happen. It's God's love that makes you going through suffering worth it. It's God's love that makes you going through suffer, suffering end up in hope rather than despair. Now, I haven't suffered, compared to lots of you and some of the stories I've heard and, and some of you who I've prayed for and stuff here, I have not suffered very much in my life. But even in my own life, the suffering I have had, I remember one time, uh, again, some, and, I've, and I've been very open with you guys about some of my struggles and and I remember one time having just been an intense period of struggling with, with anxiety, just intense, and feeling like I'm going to lose my mind, like literally feeling like I'm going crazy, not knowing what's going on, not knowing why I'm feeling why I'm, what I'm feeling and why, not knowing how to handle it, not knowing how to move forward. And I remember one time being in the middle of a really, really tough for me, and again, some of you have had much worse, but for me, incredibly difficult time 
And one morning getting up, I was actually doing message prep. You say, I thought, you guys, when you do a message prep, you're just walking on cloud nine, filled with the Holy Spirit and all that stuff. We're just normal people. I hate to break it to you as you all head for the exits. He's just a normal person. It tends to be how God works. You just keep reading this and you'll see it. And I remember one time being up early, early in the morning trying to do message prep, being absolutely overwhelmed with, with, with fear, and I did not know where it was coming from. I was doing everything I possibly could and just calling out to God and saying, God, I need you. And in that moment, this one time, I remember being in my basement, and suddenly it was like Jesus, I couldn't see him physically, but it was like he showed up, and it was like love walked into the room. I don't know any other way to explain it. It was like a physical manifestation of love. Generally, we think of love as not something physical. It's an emotion. It's a feeling. But in that moment, I felt physical. It, it was like liquid. I, literally, how I would describe it is liquid love kind of covering my entire body. And it was such a profound experience. I actually looked up at the clock. I don't, I don't know why. And it, but it lasted about 10 minutes. I was just there in my basement, and I just felt intense, the intense physical manifestation, just a little touch of God's love. And and during those 10 minutes, it was like intense waves of joy and hope and love and trust and God's closeness, just like almost blowing my circuits, but just washing over me for like about 10 minutes. It was unbelievable. And I remember thinking during this time, while this was happening to me, I remember thinking to myself, I suddenly had a whole new perspective on the suffering I was going to. I said, through, I said Lord, I would go through anything to experience this. Like when you experience God's love, and by the way, some of you are going, oh, aren't you so spiritual? You're always having these experiences. First of all, I've had one like that in my life, okay? I've never had one since. And just so you, just so you know, just to ground your feet a little bit, I didn't start floating after that, okay? I continued. After that, I had another couple of months yet where I struggled with this whole thing. Another couple of months yet where I was struggling. But something clicked in me after that experience. I had this one little touch ever since then. When I think about heaven, first of all, I think I got just a little taste, just the tiniest scratch of a taste of what we're going to feel every moment for all of eternity. It's going to be incredible. It's going to be so much more than just what's happening on the outside. It's going to be what's happening on the inside. We're going to feel God's presence so close. He's so amazing. But in that moment, this passage came alive. We can rejoice in our sufferings. How can you rejoice in your sufferings? When you get even just a tiny touch, a scratch of a touch of a revelation of God's love, you realize that's the price. That is the price. Anything we go through in this life, to get a little touch of that, that's the price. God's love is actually worth it. You actually, uh, since that time, I have read Paul differently because Paul, throughout his, his writings, constantly comes back to this thing. I would give up everything. It would be rubbish. I just want to know Jesus. I rejoice in my sufferings. And I finally realized a little bit of why. We so often are, we have, have almost no experience of God's love. We only have a head knowledge of God's love. But if you get just one teensy tiny little touch, and it doesn't have, have to be an experience like what I had. Absolutely not. Through that, I think God was just giving me a touch because I was just at a place where I was struggling to even just have faith to hold on. But he showed me since then, I just have been growing and growing and growing. He's been growing me in my ability and my capacity to receive love from him and to love others. I just plain, I, I'm, I'm not that high on the love scale yet. But I love people and I love God and I trust his love for me a lot more than I used to. And I had to go through suffering to get there. 
And Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings because actually there's a prize that's worth it. And actually God's love is absolutely, totally, 100% worth it. And if you get touched by it even once, you'll be changed forever too. And this is benefit three, which is we get access to an ever-increasing revelation of God's love in our hearts. Because it says here that his love has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That's more than just a mind thing. Okay? So often, we need both. There's two ways we need revelation of God's love. We need head revelation that we, that, because there's times when you just don't feel it. There's lots of times when you don't feel it. And we can stand on what the Word of God says. Jesus died for me, and I know he loves me. And we stand on that historical fact. That's awesome. The Christian church has done a very good job of that. What many evangelicals in our country have not done is to press people to push into the presence of God to have what this verse says, which is, I want the Holy Spirit to pour out his love into my heart. I don't want to just know it in my head. What's going to really change me is when the Holy Spirit pours it on my heart. Now, why? it's not for super spiritual people because it's not based on what we do. It's not for the, per- just, well, it's for the spiritual giants. It's for the people who get paid to do ministry. It's for the missionaries. It's for the people who pray all the time. It's not any of those things. The blessing of the love of God being poured out into your heart is not based on you. It's based on Jesus' work. If I receive, if I say, yes, Jesus, I want you to pay for my sins instead of me, you now, you, not just me, not some missionary, not some great, just the great men and women of God, you have access, unlimited access. You have just as much a right as any other person who's ever called himself a believer. You have every bit of right to go to him and say, I want you to pour out your love into my heart. And how is he going to answer that? Well, often it's in suffering when we have the most spectacular experiences of that, but however he answers it, if you begin to pray that, you have a right to pray that, and he will answer yes. And as you begin to pray that, he will begin to increase your revelation, your experience, your ability to receive his love for you and to trust his love for you and your ability to love others. And the more he begins to do that, the more you will see that love is the prize and you'll see that having more of his love is worth any amount of suffering you can go through. Because he has poured out his love into our hearts. Look at what Ephesians 3, I'm pop over to Ephesians 3 again. This is biblical, by the way, the fact that you have a right to ask God, for an increasing revelation of his love in your heart. Ephesians chapter 3, 14 and 19, one of the greatest prayers in all of Scripture says this. Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength. He's actually praying for them to have the ability, because the love of God is so great you can't even handle it, that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. This is for every person who's a believer, not just for the leaders, not just for the missionaries, not just for the prayer warriors, that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. It blows anything you can just know in your head. Why would you stop at just head knowledge? 
Why would you stop just coming to church every week and knowing a few doctrines about Jesus and then going back to work and just living as if none of this is real? Why would you settle for that? Because there's a love out there that'll blow your mind. It's not just a doctrine. It's something that needs to be poured into your heart. It surpasses knowledge. It surpasses what you can just get in here. It has to be in here. That surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What a prayer. Can you imagine praying that prayer for yourself, having other people pray that prayer for you, and seeing God begin to answer that, that you would be strengthened with the Holy Spirit in your inner being, that you would be filled with a revelation of God's love, that you would be filled with the fullness of God himself. I can't think of a better prayer we could pray for ourselves or that we could have answered. Amazing. Peace with God, access to his presence, access to ever-increasing revelation of his love, and then benefit four, we're going to jump ahead a few verses. Now we could stay in that loved one for a few more verses because all the way to verse 11 now, Paul is, if he had exclamation marks in chapter five, like in the Greek language, he didn't have exclamation marks. Like now we have exclamation marks and emoticons and all that sort of stuff. If he would have had that in New Testament Greek, you would have had emoticons going crazy, exclamation marks everywhere. He just gets more and more pumped as this chapter goes on. Then he calms down a little bit in six and seven. And then when we get to chapter eight, he just blows a gasket, Okay. But chapter 5, he gets more and more excited. You read up to verse 11, he's, he's really excited about Jesus' love. And then we get to verse 12, and that's where I'm going to pick it up here. And we find another amazing benefit. And again, Paul, he begins to repeat himself. He's, he's enthusiastic and, uh, because it's, it's amazing stuff. But verse 12, he says there, this, Therefore, so we're going to get to benefit 4 now. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, okay, and death through sin. So what's going to happen now in verses 12 to the end of the chapter, uh, Paul's going to draw out another benefit of justification by faith. And the way he's going to do it is he's going to do a comparison between Adam and Jesus. Okay? So he's going to take Adam and he's going to make some comparisons that there are some patterns, there's some parallels between Adam and Jesus. Now, there's patterns and parallels, but, but they're opposites too at the same time. Okay? So in some ways, as you're going to see in the rest of the chapter now, Adam and Jesus are the same, and it's, and, but then in a lot of ways, they're exactly the opposite in that sameness. Okay? So let's look at this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. Okay? Now, how would you like to be Adam right now? Reading this from heaven. Okay? Like, all of the world's problems came through one man. And I can just see Adam in heaven going, what about Eve? Like, <laughs> come on. Okay, so she's in there too, but Paul doesn't bother with one man, one woman. He just says, it didn't come through a group of people. It didn't come through a country. It didn't come through a team of five or six guys working on bringing evil in. It didn't even come through the devil. It came, all came through one man. And Adam goes, sheesh, right? And death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sin. So all the garbage we see and experience in the world, it all started with Adam and Eve. It all started with one man, and of course one woman, but, but Paul's going to trace his argument just through Adam. But it all started with one man, okay? And because he sinned, he broke his relationship with, with God, with the Father. And because of that, he, everybody that comes from him, and that's all of us, because he was, they were the first couple, all the rest of us humans who have ever lived and that live today, we all came from them. And so a rabbit produces rabbits, a snake produces snakes, and a sinner produces sinners. 
So when Adam broke his relationship with God, he couldn't give birth. Him and Eve couldn't give birth to people who were in right relationship with God. He gave birth to more brokenness. And so because of one man's sin, it's been passed on to all of us as descendants, and death has come to all of us. Death, sickness, disease, and sin, and lust and wickedness and all of it has come through the gateway of one man. And now all of his descendants, all of us, all of the human race is messed up because of that. That's not how God originally made us. He did not originally make people to sin. He did not originally make us with a sin nature. That came through one man. God made people. He made paradise. There was no sin there. And then Adam made a choice, and through him came brokenness to all of us, okay? So let's keep reading. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. It's a bit of an obscure statement. I don't want to take up a bunch of time here. Uh, Basically, all Paul is saying with this statement is that the law made people more accountable. So between Adam and Moses, you've got all these people living for some thousands of years. And, uh, and, but a lot, they were living in ignorance. They had within them a little bit of a sense of right and wrong because all of us do. But there was a lot of ignorance about right and wrong. So those people will stand and give account for their sins one day, but they will not be as accountable as someone who is born and has, has knowledge of the law. Because the law came and said, this is right and this is wrong, and it get, now we have no more excuses, okay? So it's not that people didn't, you know, didn't sin before the law was given. It's that people became more accountable after the law was given, okay? So that's, that's all Paul's saying there. We keep going. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. And the word type there just means uh, kind of like a foreshadowing, a pattern, a parallel, and that's because he's going to compare Adam and Jesus. Type means that there's some ways in which Adam is, is a type. He's a, he's a pattern for Jesus. Okay, and we're going to see that right away. Okay, so verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, that's Adam, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of, by And the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus, abounded for many. So here's where Adam and Jesus are parallel. Through through one man, Adam, death and sin came to everybody. So Adam's actions affected us all. In the same way, one man, Jesus, his actions and his life also affected us all. Okay? So in that way, they're the same. Adam's sin affected every human being. Jesus' life and death on the cross also affects everybody. So through one man comes this. Now, in opposite ways. Through one man comes death. Through one man comes life. Verse 16, And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So everyone who is born into Adam's lineage, everyone who's born into Adam's lineage is automatically born into condemnation. Every human being. We're not born on a road to heaven. If you, you know, a human being gets born anywhere in the world, they are not automatically on a path of loving Jesus and on their way to heaven. It's the exact opposite. Because of Adam's brokenness, we are born into a state of sinfulness, which means we're born on a path to hell, and if we don't, if something isn't done about it, every single one of us, barring none, would end up in hell. You give every person, every little baby, enough opportunity, and they're going to sin, and they're going to leave God, and they're going to despise him. Because that's what we got from our dad, Adam. Thanks. Right? (laughs) But Jesus, totally different. Anyone born into his family doesn't inherit 
Condemnation. See, Adam passes down condemnation. It's automatic. You don't, by the way, you don't have to do anything for it. Nobody has to go out one day and do something to, you know, I, I want to get a sin nature. You automatically have it. You don't have to work up a sin nature. You just have it because that's what you get when you're born to Adam. But in the exact same way, anybody born into Jesus' family does not inherit condemnation. They inherit the opposite thing, and you can't work that one up either. When you're born into Jesus' family, you don't work up justification. You don't work up a righteous nature. It's what you inherit. In Adam's lineage, you inherit condemnation. You're on the path to hell. You didn't have to do anything to get on that path. You're just there. But when you're born into Jesus' family, you inherit something different. It's a different lineage. It's a different family. You inherit justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, pass, death reigns through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, that's Jesus dying on the cross, leads to justification in life for all men. Now the question is, how do we switch lineages? How do we switch lineages, right? You're automatically, we're all automatically born into Adam's lineage. How do we switch sides so we can inherit something different? So we can inherit justification in life and grace instead of condemnation and death and all of that. And the answer is, you have, just like you have to be born into Adam's family, <laughs> um, just as you have to be born into Adam's lineage, you also have to be born into Jesus' lineage, which is why Jesus said in John 3 to Nicodemus, you have to be born again. You just, you have to be born into it. You have to give your life to Jesus and you have to be born into his lineage. But when you are born into his lineage, you inherit what comes with being descended from him. By the way, this is also just a little rabbit trail here. This is why it was imp so important that Jesus was born of a virgin. Okay? It was important that Jesus not be born into Adam's lineage and be inheriting a sin nature and all that sort of stuff. It's important that Jesus' father was God and not a human father. Okay? So Jesus himself was 100% God, 100% man. Okay? But he came, in essence, he came to start a new family, not part of Adam's lineage. That's essentially, he came to start a new race of human beings. Not a super race in the sense of, you know, superhero powers or godlike powers, nothing like that. But he essentially came to start a new race of human beings who would have a new nature. The old Adam nature has to die because that nature is given over to sin and lust and wickedness and death. So Jesus had to come and start a new lineage and a new family so that we could live something different. We could exchange natures. Because if you're a rabbit, you're going to always be a rabbit. If you're a snake, you're always going to be a snake. If you are in Adam, if you have Adam's nature, you're always going to be a sinner. It's not enough for Jesus to just clean that up. He has to change the very nature of who we are. So he has to come and start a new line, and we have to be born into that family. Now, of course... This is, this is a process. And right now, we're in the in-between. When you are born again right now, you, the Holy Spirit comes into your heart, your inner man is renewed, but you're still in your sinful, physical body. And so now, right now, we're in this in-between period. We've got these two natures locked at war within us. And we're going to talk lots about that. Next week is Church Renewal Weekend, and Pastor Ray will be up, to this, up here. But then after that, uh, we'll be going through, you know, Romans 6 and 7 and 8 and all that stuff. And we're going to talk more about what that war looks like. But... Right now, 
We've got this new Jesus, Holy Spirit nature inside of us, and it's actually there. It's a real thing. But we also still are in these sinful bodies, and we have this Adam nature, and there's this war going on inside of us. But here's where our hope comes from. Our hope is that at the resurrection, see, when you die, this is the wonderful thing about death. The wonderful thing about death is that the moment your physical body dies, your Adam nature dies. It's gone. That's why in some ways death is a celebration. It's, it's sad. We miss people. But there's also something really good about it because on the day you die, your Adam nature is dead. And then at the ra- resurrection, guess what you get? You get a brand new body. Amen. And at that point for all of eternity, you now are 100%. You no longer have two natures at war within you. You are fully remade in the likeness of Christ. You now have put on Christ eternally. You have his nature. You're not God like him. You'll never be worshipped. You won't be omniscient, all-powerful, all any of that sort of thing, weird stuff. But you will have his nature in terms of holiness and purity. And can Jesus sin? No. Does Jesus ever want to sin? Not a chance. Sometimes people worry about, how, how do we know that in heaven we're not going to sin? Here's the thing. You sin because you have Adam's nature in you. You inherited it. A rabbit acts like a rabbit. Adam's nature acts like Adam na- Adam's nature. And as long as we have that nature inside of us, we're going to continue to sin. The moment that nature is dead and you take on Christ's nature, it will be no more possible for you to sin than it would be for me to fly right now. It just won't be in your nature. And that is very good news. And we finish with this verse. Verse 19, Paul describes this, For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. We were made sinners by Adam. Sinners produce sinners. That's why we sin. It's why we can't imagine anything different than sinning. Because we're born from Adam. Sinners make sinners. One's man disobedience, the many were made sinners. But now look at the contrast with Jesus. So, by the one man's obedience, the many will. It's a process already happening now, but it's still also in the future. So, by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Someday, you're going to be righteous. Just like today, you're a sinner, and you just can't stop some of those thoughts that come into your head. Someday, you'll be righteous, and you just won't be able to stop the love and the goodness from coming out of your head. Isn't that awesome news? That's a benefit. That's benefit number four, being justified by faith, is that we're going to inherit. We already are inheriting a new nature. We already have it inside of us, but someday we're going to be completely remade and made new. So I want to pray that for you, and then we're going to sing an awesome song of worship to Jesus about his grace. But here's my weekly challenge. In your cell groups this week, start with some confession of sin, but then this is what I want you to do. Have your cell leader and others lay hands on you and pray two things for you. One, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We don't want to just be head knowledge people. We need the Holy Spirit to pour out God's love in our hearts. We need to be filled to all the fullness with him. Have people lay hands on you in your cell, your cell leader and others, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And number two, to pray Ephesians 3, 14 and 19. You don't need to pray every single word there, but the ideas of 3, 14 and 19 for you to receive a greater revelation of God's love and to be strengthened by the Holy Spirit in your inner being. I want to pray those things for you right now. Lord Jesus, we thank you for what you did for us on the cross. Not based on what we've done. Not based on us trying hard or anything like that. And yes, Lord, there's hard work to do. Tom did a great job of that last week. There's hard work to do to advance your kingdom, to overcome sin, some of those things. But all of these gifts are absolutely free. We can only just receive them. Lord, I want to pray today for every willing person here this morning that you will fill us with your Holy Spirit. 
Lord Jesus, we need to be filled. We need to have you poured out. We need to not just have Christianity and the Bible in our heads. We need to have you in our hearts. We need to be empowered from heaven. And then, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would give us here in this room this morning, this week, that you would give us an increasing, ever-powerful, Holy Spirit revelation of your love for us in our hearts to such a level that we could actually, like Paul, rejoice in our sufferings and be filled with hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.